1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So welcome to Rector's Cupboard. This is, did you guys know this? This is the final episode of the first season. Dun, 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 dun. Wow. It's been quite a buildup, hasn't it? <laughs> Slow burn. Well, because it's the most, it's the coolest thing about, about uh, final episodes. You never knew when it was coming. Uh, no, well, originally we thought we'll record maybe 10, ep- maybe 18 episodes this year. Or we thought we would do like six, season. maybe. I think a couple times we announced that this was like series two. Yeah. And then yeah. we just picked a random number. Super consistent. So we've got it all together now. Oh, yeah. And this is the 21st episode of wow. the first season. The previous episode was the penultimate episode. Do you know what that means? It means yes. the one before the last one. And hence, this is the last episode. All right. That so I want to thank you. I want to thank you both. This is Ken Bell is here with us and Allison Williams. And I want to thank you both for being along for the journey. <laughs> Um, We have a fantastic, I can promote this right now. We have a fantastic little mini series that is going to be, uh, we're recording it soon and it's going to be out by the end of June. Yeah. Uh, And uh, that series is looking at the first six months of 2020 as kind of the horrible year. The Latin term is what, annus horribilis with COVID and everything else. Remember when we met with David Goa in January? Oh yes. And we talked about how difficult the year had been so far because the plane had been shot down in Iran and there'd been some political stuff. And Yeah. And there was some snow. There and there was, was snow. snow. <laughs> I mean, that's like Garden of Eden compared, compared yes. to what's actually happened. So here's what we're going to do. We've got three parts. We've got fantastic guests. We've got part one is going to be an author named Matthew Avery Sutton. In 2014, he wrote a book called American Apocalypse, which looks at... It's the most amazing cover art as well. It is. We'll put it on, yeah. on those episode notes um, because it's like a rapture madman style. It's, it's, Fantastic. it's wonderful. Um, so uh, Matthew Avery Sutton has written on the rise of evangelicalism, modern evangelicalism in the United States. So what it explains is basically fundamentalism. But for us here at Rector's Cupboard, it helps explain how we got to where we got in terms of religious culture, particularly in the United States. That's part one. Part two is a woman named Catherine Stewart, who has written a book just recently. It's come out called Power Worshippers that looks at the rise of religious nationalism, which if you're looking at what's happening in the United States right now with uh, Donald Trump and, and the cohort around him yeah. and standing in front of a church holding, holding a Bible, having walked through uh, tear-gassed uh, protesters. Uh, terrorists, peaceful. I believe they were Yeah, he called them terrorists. Uh, we need to know about religious nationalism and how we got here. And Catherine Stewart has written just a fantastic book on it. Yeah, she writes for Rolling Stone and The Guardian and Atlantic, and she has agreed to come on and be a guest. And then part three, and we had arranged this before uh, the or, terrible events of yeah. the last couple of weeks with uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis, or as Donald Trump would say, Minneapolis. Yeah. He says that multiple times. Uh, but they were not in Minneapolis. They were in Minneapolis, and it was George Floyd, um, of course, being murdered 
uh, by uh, police officer Derek Chauvin. That's the charge now. Um, and so for us, it, it really is interesting to speak about in light of the protests and such. We're going to have on Dr. Willie James Jennings, who is uh, at Yale Divinity School. And he's one of the experts in the world on the connection between Christianity and white supremacy, particularly in the United States. So he is writing from his African-American experience, but he just, uh, it is fantastic what he has to say. Not always easy to hear. No, well, everything as, as a white person, whenever you're checking your privilege, whenever you are learning about white supremacy, it is a very humbling experience. And I think that we are conditioned as white people to not be uncomfortable and everything about validating somebody else's lived experience and what life feels for them. You need to check your, your pride, your mm -hmm. humility, and you need to mostly listen in a very, like in, in a not defensive way. And that's difficult. It, it it's difficult. I think it's completely necessary and completely we, we called for. We clearly have so far to go. I mean, we have this week examples of Drew Brees in, in the United States, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, basically making a comment about the flag and kind of insinuating, you know, some, some difficult things you had in Canada, Stockwell Day, yeah. a previous reform leader saying that there's no racism here. Well, Rex, so did the Premier of Ontario. Rex Murphy said the same Rex thing. Murphy. So all these older white men are saying that that Canada is not racist, there was, for there's example. There's the Val police dragging a, a black man by his hair out of his car and then beating him yeah. just because he was asking a question, why do you want me to get out of the car? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's, I, I'm really looking forward to speaking with um, Dr. Jennings because he writes on this so well mm -hmm. and uh, it's obviously timely, but here's, Kind of as we close this season and before we release that little series, just what I wanted to ask you before we go into today's interview with uh, Jason Biasi and Andrea Irwin about uh, technology. Um, so before that, I just wanted to ask you, you've been obviously following the news in the last days and weeks. Mm -hmm. um, there's something that's happened for me in the last few days, even though it's there's a lot of turmoil right now and it's really, really so many things are uncertain and there's a lot of upheaval. There is, I think, something hopeful in times like that as well, that there might yeah. actually be change that's been a long time coming. coming. What do you think? I think that's entirely possible. I mean, I, I'm hopeful. I think that as humans, we definitely have the capacity to shove progress aside and go back to the status quo. Um, mm. That has happened before. Um, I think that that when you look about at, at the at the size of the demonstrations and the size of these peaceful protests, when you look at um, the cities that may be largely um, white, who are still having massive protests, there, there, there is a level of engagement that is exterior to the African community, the African American community, um, that I'm, I'm fine to say that I, I might be naive about this, that I don't believe was there mm -hmm. during the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gives hope that there are people who are wanting to talk about this and seeing the systemic injustice and racism and the mistreatment of people based on their race. And they're saying, this isn't okay. And I'm going to use what maybe social privilege I might be afforded because of the color of my skin to start making some noise. Mm -hmm. the, the Al Sharpton in uh, the memorial yesterday in Minneapolis for George Floyd. There's going to be another one in Houston on the weekend or something, yeah. I guess. 
uh, Al Sharpton was saying similar things. Now he's obviously speaking from his African-American experience, but he spoke about marching in the civil rights movement and that on one of the occasions he was doing that and a white woman came up and yelled the N word at him and stuff. And, and then he said um, he was marching, you know, recently a few days ago and a little, he felt a tug on his, on his jacket and he turned around and a living, a little 11 year old white girl um, looked up at him and just said, no justice, no peace. And, and he used that to say something is different now I, that there might I, be change. I hope so. I really, I really hope, I really so. hope that is true i my personality though just has this you're a bit of a pessimist you're a bit of a realist (laughs) yeah i mean i think everyone thought that after the rodney king verdict that's 30 years ago yeah and what is and then after trayvon martin and then after and and the list can go on and you do wonder what is going to actually be that straw because you go it has to have been by now and we thought maybe we've arrived after the election of barack obama yeah. And then they put in someone who Completely at the very least too. favors the concept of white supremacy. Oh, uh, clearly. Uh, you know, so, and, but for me, it also translates into what con- what difference is this going to make in Canada? Because in Canada, we live in a different uh, dynamic. Our, I would argue our larger uh, racial sin is around uh, the Aboriginal community. Yeah. Oh my there goodness. is definitely racism towards uh, the black community in Canada, I, I think that's clear. But um, our our larger issue, I think, in Canada, because the roots in Canada go back to so the, if the if, if slavery is kind of the original American sin, our treatment of indigenous, of indigenous people is yeah. ours. Well, the Americans, oh, did that one. The Americans had that one too, but we've got you know, and they did there too. But our you know, we still haven't dealt with the legacy well, of residential the, schools and no. such. And we've had the rise of people talking about the the racism towards Asian people. Uh, we have had a history during the Japanese internment camps, the, yeah. the turning so, away of... So let me end on this before we go to the interview. Uh, a bit of a cultural theological concept, and that is scarcity or abundance. The people who fear a loss of what has been, so a, a society that has certainly privileged uh, white people and whatever else that... Do you think that some of this has to do with people thinking if other people's standard of living increases, that must mean that mine decreases? <laughs> well, I think that there, there certainly uh, is the potential that, that people have the, concept, the misconception that in order to, to give people equal rights, my rights are infringed upon. And my perspective on that is that no, you didn't realize, hopefully, that you were taking more than your fair share. Right. I, yeah, I think, I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, if, and say, for example, in a university, if there's only 100 spots, and those 100 spots have always been issued to white people, then if all of a sudden you start allowing other people to have access to that, it's going to mean that now maybe only 60 white people get in. So it's going to feel like a loss. Of course, yeah. the alternative is to open that up to being accessible to 200 people, which could mean the same. This is, this is the end. You also get people of color into So if there is truly scarcity, people are going to push back against it because they're going to feel like they're lost. The alternative is to say, no, actually, we can create abundance. Right. So there's not so 100 spots. You, there's 200. You were going to say, and then I'll. 
closed off and had the interview. You weren't? Okay. No. So what I, that's, I think there's the, there's the theological concept or the hopeful concept for us because it has to do with, we've talked in this first season about, you know, salvation or judgment, hell or whatever. Um, and this concept that infects, I think all of, all of, you know, troubled theology that somebody has to pay for, for yeah. something to be better for me. And the truth is that as we've seen in history, if things get better for the other person, they get better for me. Yeah. And we, you know, if, if we struggle with that, we have to find the ways to make that true. And so I'm really hopeful as we close. It doesn't mean we're blind to, to what is going on. We really, really look forward to this series. Um, we hope that you who are listening uh, can kind of share this around with friends and others. And uh, we, we look forward to recording that. And you know, I'm looking forward to this upcoming episode too. Church, technology. We're going to do that right now, right as now. if it's already happened. Oh, That's <laughs> how. So thank you, guys. Thank you. We will talk soon. So we want to welcome Andrea Irwin and Jason Biasi. Jason is a professor at uh, the Vancouver School of Theology. And Andrea is, ready for this, an online minister at a Highlands United Church in North Vancouver in BC. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank uh, you. Andrea, online minister. Now that was... You were an online minister before COVID. I was, yes. A very interesting shift. I went from pastoring a group of about 20 solely online congregants to all of a sudden having everyone who always said online ministry didn't have to be a thing being who I was pastoring to. So it was a big jump. It's, it's pretty amazing. I would think that some people, you know, would think online minister, that doesn't, you know, and now just this quick uh, with everything happening. Oh, that makes great sense. So, so before we get into the questions proper and before we do our tasting for our Rector's Cupboard episode, uh, this brings us, what we're going to talk about today is technology and humanity and faith. And obviously, given even just a little preamble here, we can't do this without speaking of our current context about technology and COVID. So maybe let us know how have you seen some changes? I mean, everybody has obviously had to adapt in, in great ways. What are some of those practical changes? And how do you think people have been impacted by what, uh, how, how we've been required to meet now? Yeah, certainly uh, for, for my end of things, it's been really interesting. I come from a denomination where in British Columbia, po or pre-COVID, we really had five or six churches that were focusing on online ministries. So some churches had had a YouTube page or had some social media up, but live streaming a whole service just wasn't what the majority of our denomination was doing. And of course now everyone is doing it. So we went from a very small percentage of people being able to worship in this way to now everyone sort of having their pick of where to go. And we saw this great rush in the initial couple of weeks of COVID where everyone was really reactionary and they wanted to put out as much as they possibly could and explore all of the new technologies. You couldn't buy a webcam for weeks after COVID happened because everyone was just trying to get on board. But I think that things have started to settle down people have realized sort of the way that their own congregation can be best fit into this new media that they're using churches are using mm -hmm. zoom to worship churches are live streaming we have ministers now who are recording a service on thursday and then watching it back with their congregation on sunday morning so That's it's weird. really it's so interesting watching yeah it's your own sermon <laughs> There's you know, a good part coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, uh, when the rest of the world was kind of going into mothballs, uh, Andrea was my one friend who was like, 
Hey, I can't talk now. I'm entirely too busy. You, I'll have to schedule you in a month. Like her I workload mean, quintupled and the rest of ours like was turned upside down. And, and is my impression correct that if we're talking United Church in Canada, we're not talking about like a generally youthful segment of the population. Is that fair to say? Is That are, would be fair to say, Todd. Yes. Okay. They're not yeah. necessarily the technological innovators or early adapters, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, the United Church has a really interesting history because of the denominations that formed it. I mean, with the Presbyterians and the Methodists, we had, you know, Ryerson Press. So you would think to yourself that technology was something that we did really, really well. And yet, as it turns out, it's something that has sort of just been put on the back burner. And it's been really amazing because the church has had to step into this role in the past few months of teaching older generations of people how to use all of this technology. And people just haven't had the patience to teach them before. And now they're saying thank you because not only can they worship, but they can contact their grandchildren on FaceTime. Right. And we've been the ones that have had to teach them that. I, I just think of that same thing. That's fantastic. You must, you must see some people kind of doing the, oh, wow, like when they see themselves and others on the screen and stuff, right? And just uh, that it seems so fantastic. So, oh, well, great work. We're going to bring, um, we've got a lot more questions for you, but I thought we would do the uh, open up the cupboard and inside the cupboard is our cupboard master, uh, Ken Bell. Hello, everyone. It's good to, good to be with you. What uh, you got for us? What I've got for you is a beer from Bridge Brewery. Bridge Brewery originally opened in 2012 in North Van. Um, they were, uh, I think, North Van's first microbrew. When they first opened up, they were in a really tiny space. Like the, the joke is you had to go outside to change your order because uh, it was so tiny. And then they moved into a larger place. And now they also have a, a, a second location. They don't brew there, but they serve there and stuff. Uh, so what we're going to try, they're mostly known for their um, uh, IPAs, so they really like their hops. But what we're going to try is a bourbon blood orange uh, wheat ale. And the bourbon blood orange has uh, lots of different uh, malts in it. It has, uh, it has five different malts. Uh, it has three different hops. It also has blood orange and it has bourbon. And it's good. Uh, in it. It's so delicious. You can open it up. Uh, some some of oh. you already have. That's a great sound, right? Oh. <laughs> and it's a little bit cloudy. Oops, mm -hmm. I poured really poorly. Uh, it's a little bit cloudy uh, and a little bit of an orange tint tinge to it. But uh, give that a taste. It's really lovely. It's a fantastic summer beer because it's it's not like super super light, but it's certainly drinks quite easy you know i i know this beer i have some experience with this beer this is not the most taste for me of bourbon blood orange from bridge brewery and it is fantastic just from a can like we're drinking it here today but if you go down to like the tap house or something where they have mm. the tap, um it's so much better it's yeah even even better it is uh, even better a great beer so order this when you're allowed to go back to a, a a dining establishment or sit up. You can sit on the patio now already, right? Mm -hmm. You can. Uh, both on the Lonsdale location and in their um, uh, Charlotte location. Uh, and yeah, if you see it in the stores, uh, we encourage listeners to pick it up and get Bridge Brewery. They also have low carb beer now. 
Uh, that's uh, which I've tasted, and it actually tastes like beer. It's it's pretty amazing. It tastes like a nice, cool. Uh, it it tastes like a good beer. So if if carb and low alcohol is an issue for you, their beer is 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 you mean low carb, not low alcohol. Beer. Low carb or low alcohol? <laughs> Both. It's low carb and lower alcohol. It's barely High carb, beer. low alcohol. It's called yeah. barely beer. Uh, thank you very much, Ken. All right, I'm gonna tr I'm gonna. Oh, you disappeared. Um, so we'll continue our conversation here now that we have our drinks, uh, which is mm. better. So, um, um, Jason and Andrea, you guys are working on this book. You know that already. Um, and it's one of the reasons or the reason that we wanted to talk to you about technology and humanity and faith, church. Um, and I know that that book is part of a larger series, that there are a number of authors writing books in the same series. Uh, do you have a sense of when you'll be done or is that a, is that a rough question? Well, we have a deadline this summer, so uh, that doesn't quite mean we'll be done this summer, but it does mean we're pushing hard. Um, and are you having to kind of rewrite some stuff now after COVID? There's uh, some adjustments for sure. I mean, Andrea is suddenly the most indispensable hire in the United Church of Canada, so uh, she's uh, picked up practical knowledge faster than she wanted to. Um, we do joke that we had written things BC before COVID that don't really work now. Um, so part of the inspiration was being in a meeting with older ministers who were debating whether to use social media. And Andrea and I take to Twitter DMing and saying, can you believe this conversation? And then realizing, I bet we could get a book contract this afternoon. <laughs> um, well, now we don't have to convince anybody that you have to use social media. Um, but I think people are more aware of some of its perils um, and also uh, some of the blessings it brings. Um, we've noticed that academics tend to sneer at digital life. Uh, of course, they do this while typing on word processors and emailing their publishers. Yeah. Oh. But then pastors, by necessity, have to use it because you got to reach people. So you don't have time to sit back and read McLuhan and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay pure instead. Um, so you, you've on the ground level, there's just a necessity basically or it's yes. cultural change has to be you got to run with it and i mean for you you're teaching at a theological seminary and you guys are all online now right yeah so you would think uh being a seminary of, of several graying mainline denominations in canada that we would have been tech nervous or even tech averse we've actually dived into it years ago long before all of this and the reason is that uh it doesn't really make sense to ask a would-be student to uproot, leave their home, sell their house, leave the church that raised them up and gave them a call to ministry, to move to the most expensive place in Canada and one of the most expensive in the world and start over. It makes more sense to have a person stay nestled in their community, deep in their call and their ministry that um, and get better at it through being trained. So we believe at VST and doing education face-to-face, -face, so we ask the students to turn up occasionally. But we notice once we know people in person, doing education at a distance can really work. So it's part of Andrea's and my argument that technology really works well as a supplement to face-to-face -face conversation and works poorly as a substitute for face-to-face -face, uh, conversation. Well and I think that's one of the biggest adjustments that we've seen in this COVID period is the idea that technology actually is being used for the first time in a long time, the way that it was created to be used. It's supplementing our relationships. It's sustaining relationships that couldn't be sustained 
otherwise. And mm. that's actually a really biblical model for the relationships that we have with one another. But we've kind of left it in the dust before all of this happened. And we're being reminded now what, what works, what this technology is good for, and where we really need one another. Well put. I think, well, I have, I'm, I'm going to keep going back to this title, online minister. And it's true. You're going to be like leading seminars at big conferences and stuff, just because you're going to be able to say, I was an online minister before COVID, <laughs> like, it's like this trailblazer, right? So uh, just knowing uh, from some of the content that is or will be in your book, um, to kind of take a few steps back from our current context. One of the things that I think you'll talk about in your book from what I've uh, seen is that you point out that to some degree we are, we are who we are by what we make. Uh, and so I was wondering what you mean by this and what's the principle of connection between technology and humanity. So this is before Zoom and stuff, that technology, really early technology. What does it mean to say that we are who we are by what we make? Yeah, I think that certainly what we create announces our understanding of our own purpose to the wider world. We know and proclaim what we value by way of the things that we create. Um, Jason can talk a little bit more about this, but I, you know, lately, as many people have, I'm sure I've been watching more Netflix than I should. And I recently tuned into uh, Jerry Seinfeld's newest stand-up special, and he's got this great bit about technology, and he makes this this comment about the iPhone and why we call it the iPhone. He says, we call it the iPhone because it's half phone and half myself. That's what makes a complete individual. And this is such a problematic indictment, but it feels really real. You know, social media is a great modern example of this right now. We're creating content to showcase who we are and who we want to be. And, you know, this is, this is what we do uniquely as human beings, our tangible experience in the world around us and what we make from either dirt or, you know, algorithms is unique to us. I, I always am thinking about this awful colloquialism, um, picks or it didn't happen, right? We've created something that if we aren't careful seems to suggest that we actually don't exist outside of it. And yeah. that is a problem that only humanity could manifest, I think. <laughs> It's why the uh, topic works for this book series, because uh, technology has shifted how we view ourselves as human beings. Uh, just imagine how long it takes before you get anxious if you don't have your device on you, right? Um, it's hard to imagine, not that long ago, um, but if I'm sitting in church and I don't have a device out, I start getting antsy. Like something about how we pay attention has shifted when that happens. I'm paid to be there. I'm one of the ministers. Like, I should be able to sit there for an hour and think about God. Um, but as it stands, I feel like, uh, hey, I'm going to check the time. Oh, look, I have a message. I must right. still matter, right? Something has shifted there. Mm. Yeah, it's, well, this is, this is the, you know, the, the corollary concept to the question of, you know, uh, what we make, we are what we make, but the, but the idea that the technology then remakes us, right? And I know that you guys are, are looking at that, some examples of, in a contemporary sense of, the, the thing that we have made then turns around and impacts us so greatly. Allison, you were saying? Oh, I was just going to say, like, there's obviously um, disadvantages or negative implications that you get from use of technology. And I think those have been, have been quite well talked about. You've already addressed a couple here, attention spans and kind of that, that sense of identity that again gets rooted in that. Um, I was curious, and I mean, particularly in light of, where we currently sit, 
what sort of benefits you have seen from technology, particularly in the church or within faith communities that you go, okay, this actually, this actually has been very beneficial. We've been able to, to use this well, and it has helped people. I think one of the big things that I've noticed is first of all, an acknowledgement that going to church online is actually attending church. So that was always the argument pre-COVID BC yeah. <laughs> uh, was that, you know, oh, why don't you come to church? Well, actually, I, I do. I live in an area where geographically it's, I'm unable to, to attend a church that I feel safe going to, or, you know, my, my health is such that I can't go into the doors of the building on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. but actually... I am worshiping. And so that has just been blown out of the water, which is wonderful. It's become a redundant argument that I don't have to listen to anymore. But <laughs> one of the things that I've, I've seen um, just flourish is small group ministries. So mm. some churches do this really well, others not so much. But what we've noticed in this time is that we can intentionally connect groups of people that otherwise would never sit in a room together because, you know, we, we sit in one pew with one group of people every Sunday, or we were set up with one small group ministry when we first started attending church and we haven't branched out. And I had a really um, powerful uh, encounter with one of our congregants the other day who was telling me that because we're now uh, having coffee hour on Zoom, she is seeing the faces of people that she's only ever seen the backs of heads up before. And she said to me, she's like, you know, I am used to being able to tell whether or not someone has had a haircut, but now I can tell if they've been crying. And I was like, we are totally doing something right. And, and why wasn't that the experience in our buildings on a Sunday morning? Everything's just set up to like be looking at the, yeah, I think one of the things I've noticed, I've kind of been moving around looking at various churches you could also go to church in north carolina now right jason like it's uh that you can i mean that's arguably a negative in that it's a terrible (laughs) question to ask on sunday morning where should we watch church this morning uh yeah one of the things i've noticed when i when i move around to various services online on a sunday or monday or whatever it is is that I don't know. This is nothing to do with COVID. I think it's continuing something that is probably happens in the church and outside of the church and community groups or whatever. I kind of chuckle at the groups where the churches are drawing constant attention to the technology. Do you know what I mean? Like we've set this up today and they're telling you kind of the cameras they have and the things they have. And, and I, I'm wondering, like, I see this with, with younger people that the celebration of technology itself is something that can actually put people off. Right? Like, so if you've got a big video screen back there and you use it to do something basic, that's great, like on, on, on platform at a church. But if the video screen kind of celebrates the video screen, <laughs> then how quickly that looks ridiculous, right? Have you guys? Yeah. Does this yeah. Make- <laughs> I mean, it's not unlike the minister who feels the need incessantly to thank the choir or organist or yeah. whatever. Um, I mean, and this is back to your question, Allison. What do we celebrate? I mean, God... Uh, blessed us with creation and relationship and said, cultivate and care for this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so making things that bless others is part of our divine command to cultivate and care for creation and bless uh, others with it, not just human others, but the whole creation that God intends to redeem. Um, So uh, I I think you're right, Todd, that uh, drawing attention to it has always been one easy mistake to make, to speak as though technology will save us. Um, 
when often, as one critic pointed out, technology is busy saving us from some problem technology created in the first place, mm -hmm. right? Um, but then the other problem is to speak as though technology is damning us. Um, so I don't trust declension narratives that say everything's getting worse. Plato mm -hmm. worried that writing things down would cause people's memory to atrophy, and he was correct. Mm -hmm. It does. And yet you can't not write things down because writing things down is amazing, right? So you have to be aware of, of the ways that your tools uh, debilitate as well as bless. Um, mm -hmm. And neither worship them as idols nor flee from them as idols, but give God thanks for them and then use them in ways that lead to embodied relationship uh, and love of the poor. I mean, that's the trick with everything in creation. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the conversations, Jason, that you and I have had plenty, the, the idea that these ancient practices that we have as Christian people can actually help us balance the way that we are using technology. I mean, the experience that I ran across um, when churches first made this shift, you know, we found ourselves recognizing that we weren't limited in the kinds of multimedia experiences that we could offer people during worship anymore. Like we could have a video here and a Zoom sing along here and people zooming in from another country here. And, and that's amazing. And our initial instincts is just to give people more and more. But the shadow side of that is that, of course, for the congregation member who's sitting at home, they're now able to do more as well. And so if I'm not deeply immersed in the worship experience, I'm going to start folding my laundry. And so this comes back to, to the idea awesome. of have we lost, yeah, have we lost this muscle of contemplation? And of course, the church knows how to contemplate. I mean, this is one of our practices you know they call it a digital fast and a digital sabbath that's religious language i think for a reason these these ways of balancing our lives and sort of returning to the state that we're supposed to be in are ones that are integral to our faith and so the church can step in here and give people less as opposed to more and recognize that that actually is faithful online ministry online ministry doesn't have to be the smoke machine it can be we're going to pray and, and maybe we need to teach you how to do that again. I, that, that's really well put. I, I, for some reason, I mean, we have different memories or images, metaphors in our mind through some of these uh, concepts. I read something once about how um, creativity comes when you create that kind of space, whether you call it contempl contemplative space or space to meditate or just, you know, be quiet. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I thought about, you know, when I was a kid sitting at a bus stop. So when I was a teenager or something, this pre-cell phone, there was a time. And, and uh, it, when you ha if you sat at a bus stop, what you were doing was sitting at a bus stop. Right. Well, there and were times you just had to be bored. It's barbaric. Well, now, there wasn't another option for things. Now you'd look like an idiot sitting there, like not looking at your phone, like just sitting there, right? And yet this stuff I was reading was saying, actually, that's where some of the creativity comes. People get ideas. Mm -hmm. The Whereas best ideas can, come in the shower. That's why you can't use your cell phone in the shower. Right. Well, yeah. I. Some people talk on the phone in the shower, right? They've got like I. But the. Oh um, gosh. Yeah. That's just because I walked by uh, one of our washrooms the other day, and one of my my I don't know either twenty or twenty two year old son, whichever one, was having a shower, and he was talking to somebody. I thought, what's going on? And then I realized, oh, because he's got the Bluetooth speaker in the in the shower, and he's on the phone. <laughs> no, we, we need our sacred spaces. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the shower is one he's of them. Usually, the he's usually such a contemplative, you know, it was so. <laughs> um, but I, th these are the things you mentioned in, in the pre-material that I read from your book. You mentioned Nicholas Carr and Shirley Turkle. These, these concepts, I think Carr brings up the attention span thing, that yeah. he finds it difficult now to read in a, a book, right? 
that you're, and then Turkle's talking about technology and community and kind of false community, which is kind of an easy dig now, the idea that Facebook friends aren't like real friends or whatever, like we, we've been down that road. But um, any more comments on those, those concepts of like what it does cost us in terms of attention or how we seek to generate true or I mean, what true community means. Community that, you know, is more from the tangible, physical. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I think about this as a journalist, because as a journalist, you realize when you're interviewing someone like you guys are doing with us now, you're paying attention to someone with greater depth than most people are used to receiving uh, when they're being listened to. And it's almost seductive, right? So as a minister, it's one of our superpowers. We can pay attention to someone at great depth because we want to remember, we're going to pray for them. We want to follow up with them. Um, and what's the first thing that goes away when we're multitasking while we listen to someone, the ability to concentrate like that. So I care about that a lot, having our imagination colonized by devices that are trying to sell us stuff. Um, at the same time, it's foolish not to use the devices for what they're good at. And so I noticed as a pastor, there were people who would only respond to texts, right? Our youth minister said, uh, yeah, we're not emailing the kids. Nobody, no kid opens their email. Like you, you message them. Um, so I feel like as a, in ministry, you can't uh, not use the ways to get to people. You have to be like Jesus in the parable of the sower, and you have to throw seed everywhere. And you'll be surprised how some of it will take root. Um, uh, academics tend to be the ones who sit back and, and debate whether it's a good idea. Pastors have to be activists, and they have to go get people. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. I, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, the, the dream is that the way that we can encourage people to join our communities by by showing up for them online will encourage them to go out and create those embodied relationships outside of, of our church communities or our, our online communities. Um, one of the connections that I've been thinking a lot about lately, thanks to prompting from someone, is this idea of um, confession and social media. So I, this isn't the line from Sherry Turkle that Jason often uses, but um, she did make that comment that I share, therefore I am. And so this idea of this false confidence that showing of ourselves or overshowing of ourselves makes us vulnerable and, and therefore we're automatically entered into an authentic relationship with somebody else. And so reminding people that actually that is, that is not what's forcing relationships to be made these days that in fact that is the initial invitation but we're still required to do the work to show up in body to experience what it might be like to to feel unsafe in a conversation or to feel like we don't have control over what we might end up saying um, really amazing work is being done right now in artificial emotional intelligence so this recognition finally that we seem to have as a collective now that what makes us human is the idea that we can experience empathy is something that you know we cannot be translated across our technology and so if i send you a text no matter what the text says you are not experiencing the emotion behind that because you're not sensing with your whole self how I'm showing up to that conversation. And so while, you know, the, the advance of technology that might enable computers to experience that kind of empathy, I think is a really dangerous road. The recognition on the other hand, that right. that's actually what we're missing right. is really yeah. key to the building of our relationships. I mean, just this past week, we look at 
the way that social media is being used in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and, you know, social media, I'm scrolling through my feeds and I don't see a single selfie. I don't see a single declaration of what somebody is doing with their Friday morning. All I'm seeing is posts of solidarity. And that's a recognition, a collective recognition that we are more than what this technology has led us to believe that we are. It's a stepping back into that place of empathy that we we have as humans and an invitation to take it to the streets or just yeah. into relationship. It's such a good reminder. I, I think you put that so well that uh, the, the kind of positive that, that this can call us to, but also just even the awareness of what's missing, which mm -hmm. then we can, we can begin to address that, right? I, I, uh, and then we, we speak about attention, and I know, Jason, we've mentioned this writer before in this, in this same kind of conversation, but one of the quotes that's always in my mind about attention is this Simone Weil quote where she says, uh, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. It, right. it presupposes faith and love. And I think it's not, it doesn't mean that I have to like turn everything off, right? To, but it means that I can kind of hold a quote like that and think, yeah, I, I, I need to learn and to grow in, in what it means to pay attention to something. And, and for those who would pray or something, right? There is a connection there that to just really, really, really pay attention to anything. Yeah. does move quickly to a consideration of the transcendent, right? That it's, um, it does. I just, it's, it's, so I think I really appreciate how you say that, Andrea, that being aware of some of those absences can open you up uh, in, in some really, really positive ways. So I wanted to ask too, and this is more just, you know, your personal reflections. Uh, one of the things that's happened with technology in the last few years is to look at, I'm sure this has always been happening, but given uh, the United States politically, uh, 2016 and beyond, um, there are things being, you know, blamed on technology that it might not be true, it might, but that, I, I don't know what, how much time or effort you guys have given to considering the political implications of technology, so not just faith, and, but how technology can be harnessed in ways that, you know, and, and how some of your research has, has led you in that regard. Mm -hmm. I think the area, so I'll, I'll mention something that challenges me, um, which is just because I normally tote the positive line. <laughs> but I think uh, one of the things that I struggle with is this idea of information silos. So there is so much information and the more we consume, the more these machines understand what it is that we're looking for and that becomes what they show us and so this idea that unintentionally because we don't know the inner workings of all of this um, we can box ourselves into only consuming information to only witnessing to the things that we want to witness to and we are called to so much more than that and and i see that play out in um in politics of of course and just the shaping of people's political opinions but i think it's something that is goes so much further beyond politics we need we need to know that we're witnessing with our whole selves to to everything that's put in front of us Todd Wired magazine of all places had an article about protests after Floyd and uh, said uh, online protesting is a bad idea because trolls can interrupt and uh, white vigilantes can find out where you're going. And so lots of protest organizing is happening 
uh, via bullhorn. Hey, let's meet at this park and we'll shout directions. A bullhorn is still technology. It's still right? technology. Yeah. It's not anti-technological. It's not non-technological. It's just differently technological in accord with the mission at the moment. So what I really mistrust is a progressive narrative that says every new thing that comes along will make things better. No, uh, nuclear weapons were a new thing. Uh, using human beings as slaves as technology, that was a new thing. Things aren't necessarily getting better or worse. We have to take them one at a time. Yeah, I think, I, again, reading the pre-material for your book, uh, these, in, in, in Christian understanding, we would call it eschatology, right? How things, how things are completed or come to an end. Much, much bigger consideration than like end times or something, but where things are going. And eschatologically, in terms of people's view of technology, it seems that you're going to kind of help us to not give into one of two extremes or narratives. And that would be either the progressive one that you mentioned, Jason, like, you know, technology will just answer every problem and usher us into like we're in COVID right now, this uh, pandemic and other than Zoom and whatever else, it's it's remarkable how the main ways that we're addressing COVID are the ways they did in 1918. Yeah. With this yeah. kind of flu. Like, so the idea that technology was going to, you know, usher in an absolute golden age. So the progressive one doesn't really work. But you, I think, rightfully point out that neither does that uh, narrative of doom. That, that technology is always bad and is going to, you know, bring us down to the ground and that you, I, and you can see little examples, I think, like, or even ones that we can smile at in this time of, of coronavirus, COVID. Uh, one of the main battles that, that parents and kids and educators might have is like how much screen time. And I was always a little bit on the side. I was probably the, you know, too permissive in, uh, with kids or whatever, but, you know, really strict things on screen time and really, and now most people are saying, just relax. It's okay. Like, well, there's kind of a survival with it. Like as, as yeah. like a mom with two kids, like they're probably watching more TV now than, than I generally like, but um, so are you. <laughs> we, we all kind of also need a mental break from each other. So there's also um, that component to it as well. What I have been encouraged with in particular in this, in this time is um, I know that that in certain faith communities I've been involved with seeing people pop up on zoom services that I haven't seen in person for a while. And there's just, there, there is a section of our congregation that generally feels a little more comfortable behind a screen. And there's part where I feel like this is a much more comfortable way for them to engage and it feels safer for them. And I think that that's super positive. Andrea, you have a lot of stories like that, right? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Allison. There's um, a lot of people who are using this time. First of all, I think that the time is such a beautiful invitation into a story of overcoming, right? And so we have something so profound to offer people right now when they wouldn't necessarily be open to that conversation otherwise, especially people who have had encounters with trauma in the church, who have had... Yeah you know, abusive right. situations or reasons that they've ended up leaving the church. This is now, you're right, a very safe way for them to sort of step back in to ask some of the questions without being quite so vulnerable, especially as our churches, um, you know, a lot of the work that I did before COPE BC uh, was about how do we create safe spaces online because the yeah. public domain feels so much more public than our sanctuaries. Yes, they were public buildings that we 
that we opened the doors to on a Sunday morning. But for some reason, and I know a lot of pastors have experienced this too, you know, preaching on YouTube all of a sudden feels like you're opened up to so much more. Yeah. You know, what do we do with a nasty comment? What if we get Zoom bombed? What if, you know, what if somebody doesn't like the stole that I wore? Like whatever. People are so much more um alive to to the wider world and so uh, i think that it is a safe way to step back in um one of the things that we need to be careful of is creating a container that feels exclusive in our own online spaces so while a youtube video feels like anyone and their dog could tune in on a sunday morning that chat box on the right hand side which i completely encourage people to dive into because that's how they're going to make connections and relationships that can actually feel very exclusive very cliquey and so now we're having to ask the same question we would ask of our of our in-person congregations, which is how do we make a newcomer feel welcome? What does hospitality look like in this space? Yeah, those are those are harder questions behind a screen because you get a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily want to engage with what may be strangers for them. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Um, I mean, I've been reading about screen fatigue and how in some ways like Zoom conferencing with people is so much more exhausting mm -hmm. than physical interactions because you can't you can't gauge and you can't connect with people. You're not picking up on a lot of their physical cues and you have like the box where it's like you in the box and you're seeing yourself talk and you're just drawn to that. And so I think that there's part where um yeah, it's it's interesting to see some of these these changes and some of these things that need to be checked and some of these things that need to be um, monitored as well as the ways in which I, I like what you talked about earlier where you're talking about that it's a supplement and that it works best as a supplement rather than a complete substitution because you have previous relationships to base things off of. Allison, your point is really good. And I got this from Catherine Reckless at Fordham University. I was accustomed to speaking of technology as a disembodied way of being together. And she finally said, no, it's not. It's differently embodied. You still have your body. You're still yeah. sitting there at a screen. Um, yeah. Andrea's amening me here. She thinks yeah. I'm making progress. It's slow, but she's being patient with me. Um, but Zoom... <laughs> Zoom fatigue is an example of that. We're embodied creatures. And so uh, Zoom works on our bodies in some ways that are great and some that are difficult. Um, the other thing, it's tempting for theologians to speak uh, of being against digital technology because we're an embodied sacramental faith. Um, and I say it's tempting because I think it's wrong in this way. And I got this from Graham Ward at Oxford. The church has always been a virtual body. Mm -hmm. A lot of the New Testament is letters written between people who will never meet one another in yeah. different parts of the world. And they're written as though they're supposed to obey one another and submit to one another and honor one another and love one another, give money to one another. Mm -hmm. So the church has always been a body uh, across space and time united by technology. Letter writing is technology. The letters went on boats and went over roads. And the church wasn't like, I don't know, should we not use these roads? They were built <laughs> by the Romans, right? So, um, so in some cases in scripture, like for John on Patmos, who has no community, God arranges a whole show, the apocalypse, right? He gets the book of Revelation individually. Most of, us, yeah, <laughs> most of us don't get that. Most of us write letters to one another. 
And, uh, and we call a lot of those letters scripture. So I get this from John Dyer at Dallas Seminary, who points to 2 John verse 12. When was the last time you heard a sermon on 2 John? And, and the writer says, I wish we were together, but we're not. So I wrote you this letter. Yeah. <laughs> and we call that scripture, right? Like that's second best, but it's not wicked or bad. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I, I want to, as we close, I can hear, speaking of technology, we are all in, well, we're in three different places because Cupboard Master Ken and Allison and myself are all at my house in spread apart in different rooms and outside. And, but as we speak, uh, the kitchen is being deconstructed by uh, no choice of our own insurance claim. And I can hear now that they've brought out the power tools. And so uh, we could be interrupted soon. So we'll bring it to a close soon. But I want to ask you one last question. And that is uh, what hope you have that even this time, I can sense in you guys kind of a, I know it brings you more work that COVID has hit because you got to do some rewriting and stuff, but it also makes what you're talking about something that we're going to need to hear a lot more. What gives you hope about uh, this conversation about technology and faith or just technology and humanity? Do you think that that conversation can mature in some of the ways that we've spoken about now? Do you think people will will grow in how we talk about this? Lead us out. Absolutely. I um, One of the things that completely shifted the way that I thought about technology a few years ago, um, and I'll speak specifically of the internet here, is that the internet itself is is actually not necessarily a tool. I consider it to be a place. This is a place that people consider to be their third place. They meet people, fall in love, can maintain relationships, you know, find groups of individuals that otherwise would never have gotten together. This is a place that they retreat to, waste time in, get bored in, you know, spend their time when they're excited. This is absolutely a place. And I don't think that it's something that needs to be harnessed. I think that it's something that we can absolutely harvest from. We know what to do with a new land, right? We have tools for this. We have instructions for this. This is absolutely what we are sent out for. Um, and so my my encouragement is that I think, I think, I hope, I pray that people are starting to recognize that we're not in this place to build an audience, to yeah. build a personal following. We're here to build relationships and to point, you know, point to the one whom we are following, not the other way around. Well put. I mean. Y'all know this is one of my things. We need monks and nuns. And the reason is money, sex, and power are really powerful. And so we need some people saying no to them um, so that the rest of us can say yes in a way that's life-giving rather than uh, life-destroying. And I think we need digital monks who say no. And even as I say that, I notice some of the best websites I see are built by monasteries. And it's because they want to do stuff the rest of us want to do online. They want to introduce their gifts to the rest of the world. And so I'm like, yeah, we need monks and nuns. Well, actual monks and nuns are on the web. So figure out a way to do that. You guys, thank you so much. I hear those power tools going now. So speaking of technology, well, I'm going to sign off. I'll let you guys um, uh, keep talking and such. I need to go talk to the uh, demolition crew. We look forward to the book. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. When when it comes out, and uh, and we'll, uh, I'm already pretty confident that we're going to recommend it to people. But you know, <laughs> we only good, but I know it's going to be good. So thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Ken. Very well to all.